Welcome. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a hematologist oncologist, and I'm associate professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. In my professional life, I see patients, I teach trainees, and I do research in healthcare policy. This is Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and you're listening to Season 3. On this week's episode... This is a special bonus episode of Plenary Session. I'm with Dr. Hilary Seligman, and we're talking about the National Clinical Scholars Program, whose application is due this week. You want to listen to this discussion, and if you're a resident or fellow finishing up your training, you just might want to apply, so stay tuned. If you like this podcast and want more content, follow me on Twitter at vprasadmdmph. Check out the YouTube channel, vinayprasadmdmph. Patreon backers will get access to the slides for lectures I give on Plenary Session. Want to hear from us? Email us your question at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. I'm back in Plenary Session, joined via Zoom by Dr. Hilary Seligman. And Dr. Seligman is a professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, and she runs the National Clinical Scholars Program, which is now in its reboot edition, 2.0 edition. And it's my pleasure to have her on the podcast, and we're going to talk about that program. So, Dr. Seligman, it's great to, great to see you. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. So we're here to talk about something that's near and dear to your heart, which is this program that you are literally launching any day now. Um, I wonder if you might tell listeners who are unfamiliar with this program, the National Clinical Scholars Program, why they might actually be more familiar than they think. They might have heard of it before, and now it's in its new incarnation. Um, Tell us a little bit about the program. Yeah, this program has a long history, previously funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation as the National Clinical Scholars Program. Mm -hmm. And although RWJ Foundation no longer funds it, it was such an exceptional model and had such an exceptional track record of training leaders within healthcare uh, that the uh, consortium of previous sites has gotten together uh, to reinvigorate the program as the National Clinician Scholars Program. Mm-hmm. And the National Clinician Scholars Program um, has been ongoing for a number of years, UCSF being the most recent site, uh, and places scholars at their sites at Duke, Yale, University of Michigan, University uh, of California, Los Angeles, and Penn. I see. This program has a long history, and there are many people who are graduates of this program. And graduates have gone on to do what? What's the range of things that the graduates of this program have done, at least in the the first incarnation? The National Clinical Scholars Program had an incredible track record of putting people uh, who are trained in uh, medicine into different roles within government, industry, nonprofit, as well as academic health systems. And so, you know, if you look at the list of people who are former national clinical scholars, Mm -hmm. you will be blown away by how much success this program has had in the past. It's a who's who of of medicine and of public health and of policy. Um, So, you know, who's the person out there who should be thinking of this program? You know, what sort of interests do they have? I think I I suspect they're the kinds of people who like to listen to this podcast because we talk a lot about these issues. But what are the kinds of interests they have and and what um, and where are they in their career? Uh, Where are they in their training? And and what are they going to get if they consider this program? 
The National Clinician Scholars Program is recruiting both physicians after their residency mm-hmm. and uh, nurses after completion of their doctoral studies. Mm-hmm. And what we are looking for is people who are interested uh, not in research just for research sake, I see. but research with the goal of having an impact in the community. And really, the impacts that we are particularly interested in are transformation of the healthcare system and social and systems change, particularly with a health equity lens. So if you're somebody who wants not just to study the issues that are going to be critical for the next generation of health and healthcare, but you actually want to be the leader who makes the change to make things better, then the National Clinical Scholars Program is for you. I see. These are the change makers. These are the people who look at the system and um, they see the cracks, they see the failings, they see what's broken, or they at least envision what might be better. And they decide that, you know, I, 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 they still, of course, many of them are remain active clinicians, but they want to do something beyond that. They want to go beyond that and change the policies, change the systems. That's the kind of people you're looking for. Exactly. And we are looking for people who will do that by using the tools of evidence Mm. and using the tools of research. So we are not accepting people who primarily want to be researchers, but we are very intentional about teaching formal research skills because we want people to lead and to create change in their communities based on what is proven to be true. Mm. And so we have a large emphasis on research, and many people go on to have academic careers, storied academic careers, but there are also people who join departments of public health, join nonprofits, become leaders in you know deans of their schools and chairs of their departments of medicine. I see. I will also say um, that this type of systems change and this focus on health equity is needed across all specialties. And we are very intentional about recruiting from surgery and psychiatry and internal medicine and family medicine and all the other Uh, specialties in medicine in addition to nursing because it's going to take us all together cooperating in order to make really large-scale changes in the way we provide health care in the United States. Well, that's well put. Now, I think this this is a little bit different than what I think goes on day to day. See, my understanding of policymaking in 2020 is you decide rigidly what you want to do, and then you look for data that supports your preconceived notions or you manufacture it if it doesn't exist. But what you're saying is different. You're saying you, you decide on what goals you want, and then you see what the best available data supports, or you... Yeah, this is a really important issue and something in my own career I've been really inspired by is the concept of strategic strategic science to uh, the health and public health fields. A wonderful um, set of articles available um, about strategic science that you should look up. In brief, really the um, way that we traditionally taught research was really connected to what it takes to get promoted within academia. Uh, We would teach people to set out a research agenda that would bring them from being an assistant professor to an associate professor to a full professor. And along the way, we would publish studies that sat behind firewalls and were full of jargon and took three years to reach 
uh, publication. Right. And that, that is a really good mechanism for creating careers, but it's not a really good mechanism for changing systems or for creating equity or for um, building a social justice movement. And so the concept of strategic science is to pull back from what we need for promotion. Instead, the first step is to ask ourselves, who is the person in the world who has the power to change this policy or who has the power to change this system? And then we have to create skills and leadership to reach that person and to say, what data do you need in order to convince you that this this policy needs to be changed mm-hmm. or this system needs to be changed. And then we as researchers need to go out and get that data. We have to work in service of the change makers to bring to them the data that they need in the formats that they need yes. it in order to do the things that we know are best as scientists and researchers. That is not about advocacy. That is about good education of people who have the power to make a difference. And that's really what science needs to be if we hope to be impactful as scientists. That's very well said. And I think, you know, what it really connects with in my mind is that um, at the start of your career, it's so easy to feel like I have all the time in the world. I have a 30-year career ahead of me, and that's a lot of time. But you quickly end up five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years into your career, and you see that there are things that people do to add line items to one CV. And there are things people do that really impact, drive discussions, drive policy changes. And you want to be in that second group because life is short and careers are short. And we want to do the best we can to make this world a better place in the time we have. You're nodding. I wonder if we could talk about your work. You know, you're somebody who practices what you preach. I mean, you're somebody who you care about many things, but but your professional interests focus on the intersection of really good scholarship, but also really trying to make a difference. I wonder if you might talk about that, your professional work and how you see those two roles. Yeah, sure. I'd love to. Um, my own work focuses on food insecurity and the impact of food insecurity on health outcomes across mm-hmm. the life course. And what I quickly learned in my own field, and I think the reason why the concept of strategic science is so resonant for me is that I could sit in my office and publish studies about food insecurity uh, and get promoted and be incredibly successful as an academic without having made one bit of difference at all mm. in the lives of people who are food insecure. And that, to me, does not feel like uh, good enough use of my time. And I would also argue that it is not being good stewards of the grant money that I am able to raise, that when people fund my research, the hope is that that research will make a difference and not that it will just sit in a paper that nobody reads. Mm. And so if we are going to really impact communities uh, and impact the experiences of patients and people, then we have to be willing to get out and interact and learn from the people who are doing this work day to day from a policy and systems perspective. For me, initially, what that meant was going out and learning from people who were working in the system of food banks and food pantries across the U.S. Mm -hmm. and saying to them, what do you need in order to advocate for your own services, Mm -hmm. in order to be a better provider of your services? And people have lists top of mind. And what we need to be able to do as researchers is to use that insight 
to collaboratively design research questions that will both help me in my career because I, I have to maintain my career, but also help them get to where they need to be, help them become more efficient, help them become a better provider of services, help them become more client-centered. Uh, all of those things are within our reach as researchers if we can if we can communicate and talk to and collaborate with the people who have the power to make a difference. We're talking in 2020, and we are, um, you know, really fortunate to be in, you know, one of the wealthiest nations in, on earth, and at one of the wealthiest times in human history, and and yet we also struggle simultaneously in this nation and also globally, but but in this nation with food insecurity. What is it? What does it say about us as a society? that we can be so wealthy and and so powerful compared to so many other societies and yet still struggle with this? What does it speak to our values and our priorities? Before the pandemic hit, one in nine U.S. households were food insecure. And we think those rates may have doubled, uh, if not increased more. So we have enormous food insecurity problem right now. On the one hand, it is shocking and unacceptable that rates of food insecurity are so high in the U.S. And on the other hand, it is not so surprising. And because we have a history of disinvesting from problems of low-income households and particularly disinvesting from the problems of black and brown households, of saying within our systems and structures that the community at large, that our social contract at large is not responsible for helping with these issues. So I see the problem of food insecurity in the United States as very tightly linked with underlying racism mm. and with an underlying lack of investment in black and brown communities. This is something that I think we do have the power to change. And something that I think the momentum of the last few weeks has really given us additional power to try to change those structural those issues, those root causes of food insecurity in the United States, which really come back to lack of educational opportunities, lack of job opportunities, lack of support for people when they fall on hard times. You're a trained internist, and at some point in your career, um, you this issue took on importance in your heart and it took on importance in your scholarship and it became, you know, a dominating theme of your professional career. What, when was that for you? When was the moment that you knew that I'm going to need more in my time uh, than seeing patients? I'm going to need to make a stand on this issue. I'm going to need to really work as hard as I can on this issue. Yeah, I actually was um, a few years out of residency when I had a discussion with a long-term patient of mine, a primary care patient, who, with whom I was talking about a new diagnosis of prediabetes. And as I spoke to him for, for quite some time, um, he told me that he ate every day for lunch a piece of Spam between two cinnamon rolls. Hmm. And um, it took me a long time to wrap my head around the piece of spam between two cinnamon rolls, but we had a very long discussion where I went through all the barriers to healthy dietary intake that I could imagine. And what it came down to for this gentleman is that although he would like to eat better, he did not have the money to do so. And I went back to my office that day and I typed into PubMed, pre-diabetes, I don't have money to eat. And almost nothing came up, almost nothing. 
This was back in 2006 when food insecurity was was essentially unrecognized as a risk factor uh, for the development of chronic disease. And I consider now that moment to be a turning point in my career because I thought to myself, how on earth am I going to be a good primary care provider for this patient and help him to avoid developing diabetes if he's spending 25 cents a day on lunch? Mm-hmm. Many years ago, I'm going to disguise this story a little bit, but many years ago, I worked in an urgent care clinic. And um, if you were a patient in this clinic in the lobby around the lunch hour, they would give you a, a sack lunch. Nothing special. I think half a turkey sandwich and a cup of juice. And there would always be some people who came in around that time with concerns that were modest. I have a little tingling in my finger. I have something Mm -hmm. happen, a twinge. And if you really were really honest with them and you got them to open up in the office, some people would admit that the reason they're doing that is because they came for the lunch. And that's why they're seeing the doctor. We see that at our own hospital. Yeah. We have published that that data that shows that the hospital... Um, because of a lack of other community resources, becomes a final safety net for some people, even for food. Yeah. I guess what what I want to articulate here is that, you know, I noticed something interesting about American medicine, which is that we, when it comes to some sorts of things, it's, there's, it's incredibly easy to find the money for. You want a genomic sequence, another half a million people, we, get, we can get you the money. You want to put all these people in a PET scanner. We can do that for you. You want to get people fed, clothed, have a shelter, um, have somebody check in on them, have a nurse take care of them. You want to give them the comforts that one human being would give another. Very difficult. Yeah. I've long speculated that the fundamental sort of structural problem is that interventions that consolidate wealth in the hands of fewer people are ones we're happy to do, and interventions that disperse wealth to many people are ones we will never do. And that's because all of the lobbying and all, the entire system is built in a way that people who you know, are making a device, it doesn't matter if it works or not, you're gonna consolidate wealth in the hand of shareholders. You wanna hire an army of, of nurses to go check on people who are vulnerable, you're gonna disseminate wealth to a lot of people. And so our society always chooses the former over the latter. I don't know, this is you know, sort of one of my broad theories of, of the world, I've been proven it. But I wonder if you think there's any truth to this, that there are some things, that there's this fundamental imbalance in what we'll prioritize and we, there's no shortage of money for and things that it's very hard, you have to scrape by to find funding for. I think you're spot on. And really what you call attention to is that there is no food lobbyist that yeah. is advocating for food, healthy food to be a covered benefit in an insurance plan or to be provided as part of your VA benefits. And that is an important structural problem. You know, there's a great study that was done in the British Medical Journal many, many uh, years ago where they modeled out the impact of putting all people under the age of 60 or something in the UK on a statin. And, of course, they found remarkable reductions in cardiovascular deaths mm-hmm. and um, overall mortality we, because statins are great drugs. We know that. But then they took it one step further and they modeled out the impact of putting people on an apple a day. Mm. And essentially, the results were exactly the same. Mm. And yet, putting everybody in the UK on a statin a day was considered a reasonable policy proposal. 
And giving everybody access to an apple a day is not even considered a reasonable policy proposal because we have taken out of the um, healthcare system anything that is identified with prevention. Diet's not so important. Physical activity is not so important. You're right. It's also about the financial incentives, but it's also about um, a a um, lack of commitment to things that are considered prevention or that are as effective as preventive treatments as as treatments once you have disease. And that has to change. Yeah. We have more and more people now who are playing that advocacy role for preventive interventions. Uh, with the goal of making structural change in the way healthcare is provided in the United States. This brings us right back to the National Clinician Scholars Program because it takes a lot of leadership and it takes a lot of really done and insightful research to make those very difficult changes. Mm. If Apple ended in MAB, I'm sure they'd be able to come up with a budget for it for everybody. Exactly. Uh. (laughs) Exactly. I like that. We should... We should patent that. Apple Mab. Um, but I think this has been really helpful because just from talking to you for a few minutes about this topic, I can tell there's a deep passion about this topic in you. And you, if you're coming out of residency this year, you would be a perfect person for the National Clinical Scholars Program. You're like the, a model person for this program. Mm-hmm. Of course, you're, you're far along in your career and you, know, you, don't, you don't need this program right now. But I wonder if you might paint the picture of you know, there could be a, a resident coming out of residency right now, and, and you'll also take a fellow, so somebody coming out of geriatrics fellowship or hemonc fellowship mm-hmm. or surgical fellowship. Um, they're coming out of fellowship, and they're passionate about these issues. They're passionate about a wide variety of issues at the interface of um, social networks, the social constructs of society, of policy, of reimbursement, mm-hmm. of insurance coverage, of safety nets. Um, you know, kind of paint me the picture of who are the kind of people you'd love to see an application from? Mm -hmm. We love to see applications from people who are interested in health equity and interested in health system transformation, particularly if you can demonstrate to us that you have the capacity to become a great leader. You don't have to already have a rich background in research. First of all, those skills are really easy to teach. But second of all, really, the tools of research are secondary to the need to identify people who are passionate, who are committed to health system transformation, to structural change, to health equity. If you can show us that passion, that leadership capacity, uh, and that real willingness to deeply engage with people who um, aren't necessarily the people that most research fellows spend their time with. Mm deep engagement with insurance companies, with people working at food banks, with people in the community, with partners in industry. If you want to deeply engage with that work so that we can collaboratively make the world better, if you see yourself doing that in the future, then we want to hear from you. That's wonderful. And and tell now, now, now tell me, you've got the people you want, um, you know, the kind of trainees that inspire all of us, um, that kind of keep us going in our jobs. Um, you've got that tra- those trainees. Um, what does the program provide them? What does the program look like? What are, what are you, the skills you're going to offer them? Wh- what do they gain from the program? Mm-hmm. This is a two-year fellowship program. It looks a little bit different at each of the sites, but for all of the sites, there is deep learning 
in, uh, in research skills at UCSF. That means the opportunity to get your master's of advanced studies in clinical research, should that be part of your career trajectory. And we augment those deep research skills with specific training in leadership development, professional skills, community engagement, mm -hmm. partnership, and stakeholder engagement. Uh, and all of these other skills that you have to lay on top of research in order to build the next generation of leaders uh, in, in clinical care. It sounds like, you know, somebody going into this program is somebody whose heart is in the right place. And somebody coming out of this program is equipped with a sense of skills that is readily transferable to a number of roles from, you know, a city public health commissioner um, to somebody who does consulting for a state Medicaid uh, reimbursement scheme uh, to somebody who uh, practices and maybe also manages an underserved clinic or an underserved hospital um, to maybe somebody who does even sort of a bit more um, national level politics or policy making agenda setting um, continues to have a a little bit of a practice, um, as well as an academic who thinks that, you know, my goal is not to publish in journals that even my mother wouldn't read if I gave her a copy, but to publish in places where, you know, you're really going to get traction. It sounds like there's just, it's it's a launching pad for a number, a variety of different careers. And you're going to be proud of graduates if they do any one of these things, as long as they, you know, really try to make a difference in the short time we all have. That's exactly right. And I might even push it a step farther, yeah. which is to say that um, many fields have done a really good job of inspiring people to use the skills of law or education or nonprofit management uh, to seed those skills in politics or in, um, in running nonprofits or in other places. And medicine has not traditionally done that. And yet we can bring so much to other fields because we have history and training and understand working one-on-one -on -one with people very deeply and working within very um, entrenched systems mm. in uh, understanding the physiologic burden that, um, that, that toxic stress puts on people, right. that social determinants of health and adverse childhood experiences have on people. We can bring that understanding and that lens to all of these other sectors. And not only can we, we should, because physicians have an important voice and it's not just in medical things. So when you, for example, are a physician that is sitting on your local board of supervisors, you understand how those zoning policies yeah. around putting sidewalks in are connected to wellness and well-being and childhood obesity. Right. Well, when you work for a nonprofit that is working on a completely different issue, you understand the health implications um, of these issues that you're working on. So, yes, it's important that we raise leaders who stay in academia and who become excellent researchers. And I love, will love to see that from UCSS program. And mm -hmm. I would love to see our physicians going out and making an impact on the rest of the world as well. Oh, that's so well put. You know, this this week, the New York Times had an article by Farhad Manju, which was envisioning a New York City with much less automobile traffic, much broader pedestrian spaces, much more bikeability, um, how 
all our blood pressure, that whole bell curve of blood pressure will shift if we did this. And COVID-19 has provided this opportunity for people who've never biked and never had an e-bike to go out and get it. And the streets are kind of more open. And, you know, the article I thought was spectacular. The way it was presented was spectacular. And that's also something that physicians are, a conversation physicians can be a part of too, because we know the importance of, you know, building in physical activity into your daily routine and how that both makes you feel good, likely has health benefits, but also, you know, helps the environment and helps, um, you know, help society. Um, you know, I, I wanted to ask you this question, but I think you've almost kind of answered it. But the question is, when you heard this program was coming, you threw your hat in the ring to be running this program. What was it that motivated you to decide that this is what you want to do, spend your energy on? Mm-hmm. Let me answer that. And then and let me also reflect on what, yeah, you, sure. what you just said about um, COVID-19. COVID-19 is an unmitigated disaster in every way. And yet, if there is at all a silver lining, it is that it is allowing us to make decades worth of innovation and change within a very short period of time. And it is showing us that our systems and our structures can change, and they can change for the better, and they can change quickly. Quick example from my field, we've always given school meals in a big cafeteria. And yet, just about overnight when the schools closed, People who run school nutrition programs figured out how to deliver hundreds of thousands of meals to kids in the community. They figured that out virtually overnight. So we can learn things from this tragedy that can help us create systems change in the future. So it is never, it's never been a better time to be a national clinician scholar. Because we are going to really be pushing hard for the good things that come out of this horrible experience to persist. Mm. So then let me get back to your question about what inspired me to do this. I have been so fortunate over uh, the last 20 years of my time at UCSF that I have been supported and encouraged to use my career to create an impact in the community and in the United States, even when it wasn't necessarily good for my career, even when it wasn't necessarily good for UCSF, Mm. but because it was good for the community. And at a certain point in your maturity as a researcher, what what you realize is that you now know how to do it and do it well. And the next stage is to mentor other people to be able to have that same kind of impact in whatever content area that they feel passionate about. And so my goals here are twofold. One is to help other people who are early in their career to reach this point of leadership and impact. And also to acknowledge the fact that UCSF does an incredible job of nurturing this type of a career. And it is my hope that we can nurture it for more people who are interested in making this kind of a difference. I really think that UCSF is the ideal breeding ground for a national clinician scholar. And I think that the um, capacity to run this program really enables me to be that link between UCSF and bringing in those people who are going to make a difference. Wonderful. I think... Um 
you know, the program couldn't be in better hands with you. Um, it's just so evident from talking with you and, um, and getting a sense of, you know, what really drives you and what has always driven your research. And um, I think in this new role, it's, it's just a great opportunity for you to, if anything, amplify the change you're going to make in the world by bringing forth so many, I think, important scholars. Um, what are the logistics for people out there who are feeling inspired by us talking, um, who want to, um, want to apply? Is it too late for them? I'm going to hope I'm going to put this out by Monday. So they're still going to have till the end of the week next week. Um, mm-hmm. how, how can they apply? Um, and, and again, we're talking about residency trained doctors or fellowship trained doctors, as well as nursing um, graduates who have a doctoral level degree. Um, Correct. They can apply to the program. And so how should they go about it? Type into your search engine, National Clinician Scholars Program. You will have um, opportunity to, there to learn more about the program and to apply uh, using our central application system. The deadline for this year's application is July 15th, but there is a little bit of flexibility potentially this year if you need it because of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, if you are training, keep us in mind for coming years. If you're the kind of person who you think would make a great National Clinician Scholar, bookmark that page, come back to it uh, when you're when you're ready to graduate. Dr. Seligman, this has been a great discussion, and I think people should really consider it. Um, it's it's a great program. Um, I'm a little biased because I guess I'll I'll do my best to help out in the program and. Um, and it's led to a really great network. And I know a lot of people have taken a lot of pride in the fact that, you know, this is a network with a, with a great reach and has really connected a lot of people for decades. And people have a lot of camaraderie and a lot of identity tied up in this program. And uh, we hope to keep that going. And I think, you know, you really did a great job of articulating the type of people you, you're looking for, um, what motivates them, and, and what, you, what you hope they accomplish in their career. Um, so I'll give you the last word, Dr. Seligman, and thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. And I am thrilled that you will be able as one of our core faculty members at UCSF to help us really teach our cohort of National Commission Scholars uh, how to do the kind of work that you do so well in your career too. So thank you for having me. Uh, And of course, if people are interested in learning more, they can always reach out. Yeah, thanks so much. You've been listening to season three of Plenary Session. Plenary Session is produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. The views expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it and no one else. Plenary Session is not medical advice. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Until next time.